Good afternoon, everyone. That is an enthusiastic response. Welcome to September, everybody. I, can't you tell? The fall is just around the corner. Well, I'm Paul Levengood, president um, of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'd like to welcome you to today's banner lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. As always, I thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. Uh, today, I also need to extend my appreciation to two groups who have graciously co-sponsored uh, this lecture, and those two groups are the War of 1812 Commission and the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Commission, and they co-sponsored this lecture because of the subject matter, and I'm delighted to, again, uh, work with these two fine groups who are helping keep history alive in the Commonwealth. Now, before we proceed with today's program, let me remind you of our next banner lecture, which will be here on Thursday, October 10th at noon. That day, Mary Miley Theobald will be here to talk about the subject of her book, which is The Governor's Mansion, of course, and the book is called First House, Two Centuries with Virginia's First Families. So you'll want to mark that on your calendar October 10th at noon. Our next gallery walk, excuse me, <clears throat> will take place at noon on Wednesday, September 18th. A gallery walk is when you get to go with a curator through an exhibit and see things through their eyes, which is a really neat way of exploring our collections and our exhibitions. And on the 18th, VHS curator of African American history, Dr. Laurenette Lee, Laurenette was here somewhere, there she is, uh, she will be leading a tour entitled Revolution, Songs of Social Change, 1860 to 65 and 1960 to 65, which is our newest exhibit upstairs. So when you are upstairs, please take a look at it, but please come join Laurenette uh, and, and see this exhibit with her on September 18th. Uh, one last event to talk about is a kind of a new thing for us, but how many of you were here for the quilt lecture a couple of weeks ago? All right, well, good number, and you'll be happy to know that on Saturday, September 28th, you can go in those linen presses and closets and boxes and pull out your quilts and bring them to a special event here at the VHS. Because on that day, you're encouraged to bring up to three quilts per person uh, made before the year 2000, if, if possible, to the Society for what we're calling a Documentation and Discovery Day. So from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., volunteers from the Virginia Consortium of Quilters will be here photographing and recording information about the quilts people bring in and about the makers for a statewide database that they keep up at the Virginia Quilt Museum in Harrisonburg. The group is interested in learning how quilters and quilt styles have changed over time. And the emphasis, of course, is on things made by Virginians, but all quilts will be, um, will be analyzed. So please bring any information you have along with the quilts, uh, what we like to call provenance in the museum business, which is a fancy way of saying things that tell you where the quilt came from and who owned it, and is, of course, free and open to the public. So if you've ever wanted to know more about grandmother or great-grandmother's quilt, please bring it to us on the 28th. So finally, those are the events. Um, you can always find out more information about things we have going on here at any time on our website, www.vahistorical.org, uh, or at the museum shop when you leave. And finally, before I introduce the speaker, if you have a cell phone, please make sure it's either off or silent or something like that so we do not disturb his talk. Images of American slavery conjure up 
cotton plantations and African Americans locked in bondage until the Civil War. Yet early in the 19th century, the state of slavery was quite different, and the political vicissitudes of the young nation offered diverse possibilities to slaves. Though surprising numbers of slaves did assist the Americans in the War of 1812, the conflict created opportunities for slaves to find freedom among the British. The slaves' gamble, choosing sides in the War of 1812 by today's speaker, offers a fascinating and original narrative history of an extraordinary yet little-known chapter in the saga of American history. Dr. Gene Allen Smith is a professor of history at Texas Christian University, and during the 2013-14 academic year, he will hold the Class of 1957 Distinguished Chair in Naval Heritage at the U.S. Naval Academy. He's the author or editor of eight books and numerous articles and reviews on the War of 1812, Naval and Maritime History, and Territorial Expansion. His most recent book, The Slave's Gamble, uh, and copies of which are up for sale at the shop and he will be willing to sign after the lecture, um, came out just recently. Since 2002, Gene has also served as the director for the Center of Texas Studies at TCU and since April 2008 as curator of history at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. And he was telling us before uh, at lunch that uh, he wears several hats. As you can see, he does. So please join me in giving a very nice VHS and Virginia welcome for Gene Smith, who will speak to us today about his latest book, Fighting for Freedom. Thank you so much for being here today. I truly appreciate seeing all your happy, cheerful, smiling faces. Smile now. <laughs> and I want to thank uh, Paul and Nelson and Graham and the Virginia Historical Society for having me here today. Um, being a native Southerner, I've been a member of the Virginia Historical Society for, I think, more than 20 years now. And I've done research here on a number of occasions. And it's just a first-rate institution, a wonderful place to do research. And I try to send my graduate students here all the time. So today I want to spend a few, day, a, a few days, a few minutes talking about, uh, well, you know, I am a professor and we tend to just run on ad nauseum sometimes. Uh, I want to spend a few hours or minutes uh, talking about the War of 1812 and talking about my, my book here. And one of the things that historians are always asked is, what brought you to your topic? Well, now, I can tell you exactly when I came to this topic. I came to this topic about 15 years ago, and I can almost see the day exactly. I was teaching in a U.S. history survey, and in that survey class, I was talking about the Battle of New Orleans and trying to weave a, a rich narrative, I was talking about how Andy Jackson is able to cobble together this heterogeneous multiracial force by bringing together Louisianans of French and Spanish descent. And he also had Choctaw Indians, and I always preface that by saying, you know he had 25 Choctaw Indians. They generally get left out, so I want you to remember the Choctaw Indians. He also was able to convince Kentuckians and Tennesseans to join together. They didn't like one another to begin with, and to bring them together was a unique and kind of uh, a wonderful opportunity that Jackson was able to convince them to fight together. He also has Jean Lafitte and his Baratarian pirates, 
And I make sure my students know that these are criminals. They're not really romantic, uh, heroic figures like we want to portray them. And then he had two regiments of free men of color. And as I was weaving this story, a student raised his hand and said, Well, Dr. Smith, you told us in the last class that when the British were operating in the Chesapeake, that slaves were joining with the British. And now you're telling us that Jackson is able to get free men of color and they're able, he's able to get slaves to fight with him at the Battle of New Orleans. Which one's right? And I'm thinking, oh crap. Because <laughs> I didn't know the answer to that. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Let me, let me get back to you on that. So the next class period I come in, I still didn't know the answer, and I just refused to make eye contact with him. <laughs> uh, the problem was that he was a very bright student, and he took every class that I offered, and every class period I had to make sure I didn't make real <laughs> prolonged eye contact with him. Well, last fall, I was finally finishing this book up, and I decided to send him an email. And I sent him an email saying, you remember back in 1997 when you asked me this question, and I never gave you an answer. Well, I know the answer. I said, if you want to know, you can buy the book. <laughs> I, I'm still not, he's never responded whether he bought the book or not, but uh, I hope he has. But really what this book became was a story about slaves and free men of color and how they saw an opportunity to make choices. And I begin the book by talking about an episode that happened just off the coast of Norfolk. It was on June 22, 1807, when a U.S. warship, the USS Chesapeake, a frigate, was setting sail from Norfolk, bound for the Mediterranean. It was on a shakedown cruise, so the first time it was going out to sea, and it was loaded down with baggage and supplies, it was not prepared for any type of engagement. A British warship, the HMS Leopard, held the Chesapeake just off the Virginia Capes, and the captain of that vessel wanted to search the American warship for deserters. The American captain, James Barron, refused. And the short of the story is, when he refused, the British fired a broadside of guns into the American vessel, ultimately fired three broadsides of guns, killed four American sailors, wounded 18, 22 holes in the hull of the American ship. Now, after the, the three broadsides were fired, the Americans lowered their flag. Captain James Barron prepared to surrender his sword. The British captain, named Salisbury Humphreys, he refused to accept the sword. Instead, he sent his officers aboard and mustered the American crew. He claimed there were deserters aboard the American ship. So the Americans were lined up. They identified four men that these British officers claimed had deserted from a British ship. And they took them back in chains to the British fleet. Now, all four of those men claimed that they had been impressed, that they had been taken forcibly by the British and forced to serve aboard a British warship. 
So that raised the question of impressment. Furthermore, of those four men, three of them were African Americans. And the British were claiming that they had deserted from the British Navy. When the American ship gets back to Norfolk, Americans begin protesting this event. Congressmen begin crying out that American citizens have been impressed, that this was a violation of American sovereignty, a violation of American honor. They didn't know that three of the four men were black. Had they known that, would they still have been chirping out that these were American citizens that had been seized? Probably not. But that episode there convinced me that I needed to understand what this was all about. Why were these black men sailing aboard ship? And why were they forced to be in the British Navy? That began my 15-year journey to understand what this war meant to African Americans. Now, what I would like to do is tell you a few vignettes or stories And from these stories, perhaps we can glean a a deeper meaning for what the war truly meant for the black community. These are names that some of you may have heard. First is a man named Peter Dennison. How many of you have heard of Peter Dennison? I can see every one of you raising your hand. (laughs) Peter Dennison was a slave in Detroit, Michigan. Wait a minute, Detroit? Detroit had slavery? Yes, Detroit had slavery. In fact, after the American Revolution, Detroit was supposed to be returned to the United States or given to the United States by the British. The British were supposed to evacuate their post in the West. When does the United States take possession of Detroit? In the summer of 1796. Fifteen years after the peace had been signed. Now, the reason for that was that American merchants had not paid their debts to British entrepreneurs. And the British held on to the territory. They finally gave up the territory with the passage and ratification of Jay's Treaty in 1795. They formally handed it over in the summer of 1796. So what does this have to do with Peter Dennison? Well, remember the old Northwest Ordinance and the Land Ordinance of 1787 and 1785. The Northwest had claimed that this territory, this territory would be free. But as long as the British held on to it, it was slave territory. Beginning in 1796, when it was finally handed over to the Americans, slaves from Canada started crossing the Detroit River, finding their way to American territory. That was now free. Peter Dennison 
was owned by a lady named Catherine Tucker. And Catherine was experiencing, by the, by the early part of 1807, Catherine Tucker was experiencing financial difficulties. So she signed a contract with a man named Elijah Brush. Now, according to the contract, Peter Dennison would work for Elijah Brush for a period of a little more than a year. At the end of that period, Elijah Brush would give Peter Dennison his freedom. In return, Catherine Tucker would be paid. That was the, the contract. But as the contract was nearing expiration, when it was about to be fulfilled, Catherine Tucker claimed that she had been defrauded. And she filed suit. She filed suit in the Michigan Territorial Court. The judge, a man named Augustus Woodward, he ruled that this case, this case was troubling because it meant the future to this region. He ultimately ruled that Peter Dennison was not a person but was property and that as being property, he still was owned by Catherine Tucker. So Augustus Woodward nullified the contract. Peter Dennison remained a slave. So this was in 1807. Remember what had happened here in 1807? This Chesapeake leopard affair? All of a sudden now there is the threat of war there on the northwestern frontier. Governor William Hull of the territory all of a sudden is thinking, well, if we're going to war, I've got to be prepared. The territory has to be prepared. So he called out the militia. And that was not enough men to protect the territory. And he noticed that there were an increasing number of slaves that had found their way to Detroit. Peter Dennison, somewhat infamous there in Detroit, had gained some notoriety. So Hull asked Peter Dennison to form a black militia company of runaway slaves. So in the fall of 1807, the former, well, the slave, I should say, not former, but the slave, Peter Dennison, was commanding a group of runaway slaves from Canada. This just destroys the entire concept of what most people have of the Northwest. The idea that slaves are escaping from Canada south into America, doesn't that, doesn't that, upset this idea of the Underground Railroad leading north to freedom? Yeah. And now Peter Dennison is commanding these runaway slaves? Well, fortunately, in 1807 there was not a war. The United States and Great Britain were able to ameliorate their differences. Thomas Jefferson does not declare, uh, does not ask Congress to declare war on Great Britain. Instead, he calls for a special session of Congress, and the episode quietly subsides. When the war finally does come to Michigan, it'll be 1812. 
some five years later. And one of the first theater, theaters of operation will, of course, be, I'm sorry, one of the first theaters of operation, of course, will be there at Detroit. From that period, 1807 to 1812, there were an increasing number of slaves that are finding their way across the icy flows of the Detroit River to the freedom of American territory. And when the war begins, William Hull will again use Peter Dennison and the black militia to help defend Detroit. Well, for those of you who know anything about the war, the first engagement here in the Northwest proves to be an utter disaster for the Americans. When I mention the name William Hull, does it strike fear in you? No. If I mention the, day, the name Benedict Arnold, you know, people, I hear you going, traitor, traitor. Well, in the 19th century, the name William Hull was synonymous to Benedict Arnold because people believe he betrayed his country. And throughout the 19th century, the Hull family worked diligently to reclaim the honor of their their disgraced hero. By the end of the 19th century, Hull's name had been reclaimed, but I guess the greatest dishonor was that he had been forgotten by history because we don't even really know about him today. But there at Detroit, he will ultimately surrender the city rather than fight for a variety of reasons. And when he does, the officers... The soldiers, they will be taken into Canada as prisoners. The militia, they will be paroled. Peter Dennison and the black soldiers will be paroled. Now, we know that Peter Dennison, for some reason he, pop, he falls off the radar screen here after the surrender. I'm not quite sure what happens to him. But we do know that in 1815, at the end of the war, he pops up again in a little community called Sandwich, just on the other side of the Detroit River. He joins a church, an Anglican church. And this Peter Dennison, the only difference is that his name was spelled a little differently. In the legal proceedings of the slave Peter Dennison, it's spelled D-E-N-I-S-O-N. In the church registry, this Peter Dennison is spelled D-E-N-N-I-S-O-N. Otherwise, this new Peter Dennison with two N's, he claimed he was a free man. That he had a wife and four kids. Well, sheesh, the slave had a wife and four kids. Pretty good chance it's the same person. And what you see in the case of this Peter Dennison is that he had used the chaos of war to cross over that boundary line and to declare himself a free man. What has happened here in a very short period of time, from 1796 until 1815. Slaves were escaping south into America and to freedom. 
But after 1815, slaves will start escaping north to the freedom of Canada. The whole idea of the Underground Railroad, you can literally say that Peter Dennison is there on the vanguard of that railroad line. Finding his way across the Detroit River to the freedom of Canada rather than remaining a slave in the United States. That's Peter Dennison's story. It's kind of a feel-good story, isn't it? He finds freedom using war. Well, what about Oliver Hazard Perry? The naval officer who had been sent from Rhode Island to the Great Lakes to Lake Erie. He's going to bring a number of men with him, including two slaves. One, a man named Cyrus Tiffany, or Old Tiff, as Perry called him. Old Tiff was a fifer. Apparently had played the fife for George Washington in Washington's tent. And during the time of the battle, Tiffany, or Old Tiff, was was Perry's personal servant. So Perry thought he would put him in a place where he would be safe. He put him on the berth deck, right below the main deck. He gave him a musket and told him to make sure the berth deck remained clear. Don't let anyone find their way down there to avoid the, the duty of battle. Well, during the engagement, between the American ship, the Lawrence, and the British ship, the berth deck filled up very quickly with wounded. And old Tiff, convinced that these men were not wounded at all, but they were simply skulkers trying to avoid their duty. Well, the, the number of killed and wounded aboard Perry's ship, the Lawrence, was in the neighborhood of 80%. But one man who suffered no wounds whatsoever was old Tiff, who would stay by Perry's side to the very end when Perry died in 1819. Perry's ship, the Lawrence, would be badly beaten, battered and bruised. And you know the story. He gets off the Lawrence. He's able to take his flag and go by rowboat to a ship called the Niagara, which was coming up from the rear. The other slave that he brought with him was the man raising his hand there, a man named Hannibal Collins, who would be immortalized here as one of the rowers that took Perry to the Niagara. The next story or vignette I want to share with you is of a slave named Charles Ball. And I found in this area of the country, many people know about Charles Ball. He was apparently born in Calvert County, Maryland. He was a slave on a plantation. And as a young boy, his mother and his siblings were sold away from the plantation. The young Ball was forced to to be taken care of by his grandfather. And sometime around 1800, when Charles Ball was about 20, 
His master leased him out to the U.S. Navy, and he served aboard the USS Congress. That was at harbor or at anchor in the Washington Navy Yard. There he served as a cook and he helped clean the ship. But what he saw aboard that vessel and aboard the other sailor, among the other sailors coming in to the Washington Navy Yard was there were lots of black sailors. And they were free men. Why was, why was he a slave? And on several instances, he made plans to try to escape, but those plans always fell through. About 1802, his owner brought him back to the Maryland farm and ultimately sold him to another nearby farm, a man named Levin Ballard. Now, Ballard was known for being a hateful man. He was known for being brutal, not providing enough food, clothing, and shelter to his slaves. And at sometime around 1807, Ballard sold Charles Ball south to Georgia. Now, Ball claimed in his autobiographical narrative that he was dragged to Georgia in chains. He was able to break free and to make his way back to Maryland under cover of darkness, only traveling at night, living off the land. By the time he got back to Calvert County, the white people in the area did not turn him in as a fugitive slave. In fact, they began to hire him out. Apparently, Levin Ballard had died. And apparently, even the white community had not had not suffered or hated the loss because when Charles Ball came back, they welcomed him back into the community. Charles Ball began working for others, making money, buying land, married. I've made this mistake before. I said married, had children. No, his wife had children. And up until the War of 1812, Charles Ball seemed to be prospering. But when the War of 1812 came, all of a sudden his life was turned upside down. In the spring of 1813, or pardon me, in the summer of 1813, when the British began operating in the Chesapeake Bay, they were raiding plantations, liberating slaves, requisitioning supplies, and a group of Maryland planters from Calvert County decided they would visit the British fleet at anchor in the Chesapeake and try to convince their slaves to return. They asked Charles Ball to attend them. He went with them. They went aboard the British ships. They began talking to the slaves. By the end of the day, guess how many slaves had chosen to return? Zero. The white plantation owners asked Charles Ball if he would spend a night there and mingle amongst the slaves, convince them to go back to their owners. Charles Ball did. He stayed there. But the next morning, guess how many slaves had chosen to return to bondage? Zero. And as Ball was getting off the ship, a British officer asked him, would you like to join us as a free man in a British colony? 
And Charles Ball said, no, I am a free man. I have all the land to work that I can possibly work. Something had happened to Charles Ball. And he had consciously, he consciously identified himself as a free man, even though he was truly a fugitive slave. Well, the next spring, 1814, a new British command, uh, admiral commanding the station, Admiral Alexander Forster English Cochrane, he would issue a proclamation that would grant freedom to any slave who wanted to avail themselves of it. And over the course of the spring, summer, and fall of 1814, the British are going to liberate hundreds of slaves. Charles Ball... Charles Ball had made a choice not to be one of those. The British would establish a base on Tangier Island. There they convinced 600 of the refugees, 600 men, that they should take uniforms and weapons and become colonial marines. They did so and they would serve with the British through the remainder of the campaign, beginning in the summer of 1814, they would march on Washington, D.C., and they would also march on Baltimore. They became loyal, tough British auxiliaries. In fact, their immediate commander, Admiral Alexander Coburn, he would comment about how these men, he didn't trust them in the beginning, but they became the best soldiers that he had. Charles Ball, well, instead of joining the British, he joined the Americans. And he served with Commodore Joshua Barney and the gunboats in the, in the Chesapeake. And when Barney scuttled his flotilla in the Patuxent, Charles Ball was one of the men who helped drag those cannon to the Washington Navy Yard where they grabbed other cannon and made their way out to Bladensburg. And as the British advanced on Washington, they crossed the Anacostia or the Eastern Branch there. It was the Americans there at Bladensburg that commanded the bridge across the stream. And it was the artillery of those sailors and marines on the high ground to the west that prevented this from being any more of a disaster than it was. Now, if you know the story of Bladensburg, as the British crossed the stream, the American militia broke and ran. And it was the artillery that continued firing and firing and firing until they began running out of ammunition and powder. Then... Commodore Barney was wounded, and as he fell down, he ordered his men to spike their guns and to retreat. Charles Ball simply dropped, he was a sponger on a cannon. He simply dropped his sponge and walked right through the British lines. He was a black man. No one expected him to be a soldier. He ultimately made his way. Well, while the British end up going to Washington... And having dinner in Washington, seeing a show, you know, a light show. 
Charles Ball would make his way to Baltimore. He would serve in the outer defenses here. And as the British tried to take Baltimore, of course, we know the story there. They don't take Baltimore. But Charles Ball could say that he contributed to that American victory at Baltimore. And after the war, Charles Ball prospered as a small farmer. He bought land. His first wife died. He married again. She had more children. Until about 1830, when... 1830, when a slave trader coming through Calvert County claimed to recognize Charles Ball and threw him into chains and dragged him back to Georgia. Ball claimed in his narrative he was able to escape again, but by the time he made his way back to Maryland this time, it was about a year, by the time he got back, he learned that his wife had been taken and his children had been dragged off and changed into slavery. It was a sad story. Charles Ball spent the rest of his life looking for the freedom for his wife and for his children. But Charles Ball could have avoided that pain altogether. He could have avoided that pain by accepting the British offer for freedom rather than staying there in America and falsely proclaiming that he was a free man. The next vignette I want to offer to you is a story of a slave named Ned Simmons. Ned Simmons was owned by General Nathaniel Green, the great Revolutionary War hero. And after the war, Green purchased a plantation on Cumberland Island, and he would remain there until his death in the late 1780s. Ned Simmons attended his master to his dying days. Ned Simmons had been born about 1760, maybe 1763. He had served alongside Green during the Revolution, he was a trusted servant. He, too, was a musician. In the early 1790s, when George Washington did his first tour of the country as president, he visited Cumberland Island to pay his respects to General Green's widow. And Ned Simmons helped carry the general's baggage. He paid his respects because he had met the general before. But Ned Simmons was a slave. And when Green had died, being property, Ned Simmons ping-ponged around the family. The son, Nat, didn't want to own slaves, so he gave the slaves to his sister, Louisa. She didn't want to own slaves, so she gave them to their mother. The mother died at 1812, and they went back to Louisa. They were just kind of ping-ponging around, and Ned Simmons simply lived there on Dungeness Plantation. When the War of 1812 finally came to Cumberland Island, it's not until January of 1815. Now, when I've given this talk before and I say January 1815, someone is always quick to point out, but, but the, 
the peace treaty, Christmas Eve, 1814, the war was over. It wasn't over until the peace treaty is signed by both nations and ratified by both nations. It would not be would not make it back to America until February, mid-February 1815. It was not ratified, and news of that did not make it to the, the South Atlantic, to Cumberland Island, until mid-March 1815. So when the British land there on Cumberland Island in early January 1815, they are wreaking havoc on the island and the surrounding island, liberating slaves. And one of the first who would throw off his chains of bondage and join with the British would be Ned Simmons. He volunteered to be a British soldier. He'd been a soldier in the Revolution. Why couldn't he be a soldier in the War of 1812? He was one of the first to join the British colonial Marines. And in fact, Admiral George Coburn commented that Ned Simmons was a fine, outstanding soldier. He was so good at what he did. He would leave Ned Simmons there on the island to serve as an example to all other slaves that made their way to Cumberland Island. How many slaves make their way to the island? About 1,700. Some 1,400 of them will be evacuated as refugees. About 300 end up dying from various diseases. And there they see Ned Simmons with his red uniform, his weapon, with his military countenance, he's a fine, outstanding example. But then peace negotiators arrive, peace commissioners, I should say, they arrive at Cumberland Island in mid-March. And there George Coburn spends the better part of a week haggling with these peace commissioners. Ultimately, Coburn decided that he would return only the property that was still on Cumberland Island. All other property that had been taken off the island, well, it had either been used, and if it, were, if it were, was individuals, they were already free. They couldn't make a man relinquish his freedom. But Ned Simmons was still there on the island. And at... Somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 years old, he was forced to give up his uniform and to give up his weapon. There's an oral tradition of the family that says, as the uniform was being stripped off of him, that he hung on to it for dear life. And as it was pulled out of his hands, he hung on to a button and pulled the button off the uniform. That would become his prized possession. He would keep for almost the rest of his life. Ned Simmons didn't get his freedom here. But he does ultimately gain his freedom. In 1863, at this point, the centenarian Ned Simmons and his 70-year-old daughter, they will use darkness to find their way to Union forces here near Jacksonville. And when they arrived there, there were 
soldiers that provided them with food and shelter. There were missionary women who tended to the old man Ned Simmons, the centenarian. In fact, they taught Ned Simmons to read. At 100 years old, this man learned to read. And there was a newspaper reporter there who recorded Ned's story. Because Ned had served with Nathaniel Green. He had almost tasted freedom in 1815 and finally had freedom here in 1863. And in the last interview that Ned Simmons gave, he said something to the effect that if he were to die and go to heaven today, he could at least go knowing that he was a free man. He died a few days later. Kind of a sad story, isn't it? But in some respects, it's a feel-good story. Because he did gain his freedom. In fact, in the 1990s, an archaeological team was excavating the slave cabins at Dungeness Plantation, and they found a button from a British 1808 uniform confirming the family's oral traditions. The reason he had not been able to take it with him to Florida is that he and his daughter had had to flee suddenly and they escaped under cover of darkness so quickly that he had not been able to gather his belongings. Other stories such as a man named Prince Whitten who escaped from South Carolina in slavery and made his way to Spanish Florida. And during the War of 1812, he fought for Spain. Wait a minute. War of 1812, Britain, United States, where Spain come in? Well, down here in this area, Americans were fighting the Spanish. And Prince Whitten, his daughter, Polly, uh, she married a man named, uh, make sure I get his name right, uh, Jacobo, oh, oh boy. It's one of those hard names. Um, Orhe Jacobo, who was the, the nephew of Orhe Biasu. Yeah, I know you, you're keeping track of this, right? You need a program. But Orhe Biasu had been a co-conspirator with Toussaint Louverture in the Haitian Revolution. But he had broken from Toussaint and sided with the Spanish. So when the Spanish evacuated the island, they took Orhe. Instead of taking him to Havana, they, they threw him off into Florida where he couldn't cause too much trouble. Well, he creates his own little military fiefdom there in Florida. But when he dies, Orhe Jacobo became the military chieftain and his father-in-law, Prince Whitten, became his right-hand man. In fact, in September of 1812, Prince Whitten leads the most important attack against Americans, driving them back away from, from Castillo de San Marcos there at St. Augustine, making sure that the Americans are not able to capture the territory. Now, if you know the story of America, well, the United States does eventually get Florida in 1821. And when they acquire Florida... The Spanish give Prince Whitten a chance to either stay there under American rule 
or to join with them and go to Cuba. Guess what Prince Witten chose? Let's go to Cuba. The beaches are nicer there. So rather than being in America, he chose to escape to freedom where he lived on a Spanish military pension for the remainder of his life. And then the last story, to get back to bookend where we began. Andy Jackson cobbled together that multinational heterogeneous force. And if you look here in this proclamation, Sons of freedom, you are called upon to defend our most inestimable blessing. As Americans, your country looks with confidence to her adopted children for a valorous support as a faithful return for the advantages enjoyed under her mild and equitable government. I think he was blowing hot air up their skirt. But yes, two regiments of free men of color signed with Jackson and agreed to fight with him there at Chalmette. There were also a number of slaves. Jackson reportedly promised freedom to slaves. One of those young men was a 14-year-old drummer boy named Jordan Noble. And as a drummer boy, he was right there in the thick of the battle because the drummer boy is the one who conveys the orders when there is smoke and noise everywhere. It's the drum beat that tells men what they should do. Now, as you can tell, he's not 14 there. This image was taken in the 1880s, just shortly before his death. He dies in 1890. And by the time it, Jordan Noble had died, he had served with Andy Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. He had fought in the Seminole Wars. He had served under Zachary Taylor in the Mexican War. And at the beginning of the American Civil War, he raised a regiment of black soldiers to fight for the Confederacy in New Orleans. But remember, New Orleans falls pretty quickly. And when it falls, Ben Butler takes over, Union General Ben Butler, and Jordan Noble then raises a regiment of black soldiers to fight for the Union. So he's making sure all bases are covered. In fact, in the years after the American Civil War, he would become a local celebrity in New Orleans, telling his stories about serving with General Jackson and serving with Zach Taylor. He would be a free man after the Civil War. He claimed he was free before the Civil War, but he never got to enjoy the inestimable blessings that Jackson had proclaimed had been so mild. There at the Battle of New Orleans, it was those black troops that helped give Jackson victory. And after the battle, the free men of color had been promised equal pay and land bounties. They were paid the same amount as their white counterparts. The land bounties that had been promised to them were not given to them until the late 1840s. And by that point in time, many of those men had died and their descendants weren't able to make their claims. The slaves who had sided with Jackson, well, reportedly they were stripped of their weapons and put back into bondage. You know the story about when um, Frederick Douglass met Andy Jackson. 
he confided to his diary that um, Andrew Jackson was no friend of the, of the black man. Well, I think the War of 1812 proved that conclusively. There are lots of stories about slaves and free men of color who made choices. And when I began this book, I was convinced that the Americans were the good guys and the British were the bad guys. But the more I worked on this project, I became more and more convinced that as the war came to an end, that it was the Americans who were not the good guys. It was instead the British and the Spanish who were the good guys. The British and the Spanish offered freedom to their slaves, the men who served with them, and took them away from this land of bondage. And for the Americans, well, the Americans will keep slaves in bondage until 1865. How many slaves ultimately gained their freedom because of the war? Well, the number is somewhere close to 5,000. Now, I was giving this talk to a black genealogical society not long ago, and a lady raised her hand and said, well, that's not many. Well, when you think about how short this war really was, the intense fighting begins in the late spring of 1813 along the Chesapeake. And it's going to be over by the fall of 1814. You're looking at maybe 18 months. And along the Atlantic, 18 months and 5,000 individuals, that's a pretty substantial number of refugees who found freedom. Furthermore, the British only, only have two major operations. One is an operation against Washington. The other is an operation against Baltimore. Otherwise, they were simply... Landing, raiding, looting, pillaging, liberating, and going back to their ships. And every time they did that, you can read in the British accounts, every time there were 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 slaves that they bring back with them. So the British are going to devastate the Virginia and Maryland economies. In fact, I am convinced, and I, I say this in the book, that this war does more to destroy Virginia and Maryland's economy than anything before or after. And if you think about it, the U.S. didn't have much of a, a military. Instead, we relied on militia. And if you were along the shores of the Chesapeake and you were a militiaman, you know, you're grabbing your musket off the hearth and you're looking out for enemy cells... So while you're straining your eyes to see enemy cells, you're always having to look over your shoulders to see if your slaves are rioting, revolting, or running away. Well, for that reason, Virginians and Maryland's become convinced that the federal government did nothing to protect them and to help them during the war. And in the post-war period, slavery becomes more intense, more intense. The slaves who do find their freedom, they end up in places like Halifax in Canada. They find it is pretty cold up there. Or they end up in places like Trinidad, right in the middle of the, the island, where there's a jungle that you constantly have to clear or it will close in on you. 
they do get their freedom, which is more than they can say for the Americans. Other areas also suffered the specter of racial unrest. Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, all of these areas feared the British would attack, and they all called out every available man to help defend their locales. And while white and black were toiling side by side to put up defenses for their locales, everyone was happy. But once the threat of war had subsided, instead there was a biracial society. What this book became as I finished it was a, not so much a story of the War of 1812, but it's really a freedom story. And I contend that prior to the War of 1812, there was a movement afoot to live up to the ideas in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. As you can see here, slavery had been outlawed in the northern states and even in southern states. They were beginning to make, have individual cases of emancipation. But the War of 1812 ends that once and for all. Because after the war, it opens up new lands to the south and west. New lands that become cotton plantation lands cultivated by slave labor. And when you look at this image, these were areas that were incorporated after the War of 1812. Slavery is going to take a foothold and it's going to become strongly entrenched. What we understand today as the old South, the cotton producing South, is an outgrowth of the War of 1812. So I'll conclude here with Francis Scott Key and his defense of Fort McHenry. And most people can, well, most people know the words. I, I can't say most people can sing the song. I mean, we've learned that over the years. But what we often don't realize is that there's a third verse. And in that third verse, which area I've got in red, it says, And where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion, a home and a country shall leave us no more? Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight. Or the gloom of the grave. Well, that's a direct reference to how the British were liberating slaves and using them as hired soldiers during the Revolution. I mean, during the War of 1812. So with that, I'll go ahead and conclude. Thank you very much. Now, if you would like to ask a question, you make up a question, I'll make up an answer. You spoke of uh, uh, blacks serving in Detroit and then, of course, with Jackson, free blacks. How did slaves uh, assist or participate with the American army? Uh, they participated and served in a variety of, of manners. 
Uh, they served the traditional ways as cooks and labor units, or what were often called pioneer, pioneer units, but they also served as combatants. I mean, there are instances uh, and accounts, especially in the Northwest, in Sandusky and Chillicothe, uh, in the Niagara region at Fort George, um, Fort Niagara. I mean, they were serving right there amongst the white soldiers. What about the blacks in Washington, D.C. during that time that Washington was... Um, when the British came for a sightseeing the, when tour? The British, I mean, did any blacks, uh, were they able to Well, in fact, the, uh, the colonial marines that the British had been training were right there in the vanguard of the British advance on Washington. Now, when they arrived there, um, there's all the stories about how the British looted and pillaged. The black soldiers reportedly were the most org orderly and the most organized among the British regiments. Um, there were a number of slaves who would then join with the British. Uh, George Coburn and Robert Ross did not want to incorporate those uh, refugee slaves while they were engaged in this operation into the heart of enemy territory. So they refused to accept them immediately. But as they're evacuating back to the British fleet, a horde of slaves refugee slaves began following them. And when they began following them, both uh, Coburn and, um, and Ross said, hey, this is a good thing because now we've got kind of a rear guard protection, you know, a, a human shield, so to speak, to make sure our, our rear flank is, is guarded. So, and there's lots of stories in the book about how uh, during the British occupation, what slaves were, were doing in, in, in Washington. Now, of course, one of the things that I'm always amazed by is how most whites were not, did not think that the slaves would voluntarily join with the British. They thought they're being coerced, they're being tricked, they're being, you know, uh, dragged off against their will. And um, I didn't see any cases of that. There's a uh, book out, I don't remember the title, about the uh, Seminole Wars, and apparently many slaves went into Florida, joined with and even intermarried heavily with the Seminoles, Certainly. and this was one of the reasons for the ultimate taking, I believe, by Jackson of yes. Florida. Yes, yes. In fact, um, that's a part of my story here because there's a whole episode uh, in the post-war co period called Negro Fort. Uh, there's a, a fort on the Apalachicola River, about 20 miles or so from the, from the uh, Gulf of Mexico. It's a position that had been uh, created by the British during the War of 1812 as a, um, a supply depot and a, um, uh, a fortification. Well, when the war is over, the British give it to Indians and runaway slaves, and they heavily arm it uh, so that they can protect themselves. Now, uh, it's not until the summer of 1816 that a joint U.S. Army and Navy expedition will go in and destroy the position. And in the process, uh, they kill about, oh, more than 300 Indians and slaves as they uh, level the fort. Yes? Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here.